From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. In recent months, Fondomonte Arizona, a subsidiary of Saudi Arabia-based Almarai Dairy Company, has been getting renewed attention for growing alfalfa in drought-prone Arizona and sending it to Saudi Arabia to feed the country's cows. Despite a worsening drought, several factors, including political influence and lack of regulations, have allowed the company to draw an unlimited amount of groundwater from the wells it operates in La Paz County in Arizona. So last month, the state of Arizona rescinded drilling permits for two additional water wells for the company after authorities discovered inconsistencies in Fondamonte's well applications. According to the Associated Press, the two new wells would have pumped in just three minutes what a family of four uses in a month. So why did Saudi Arabia choose Arizona for its crop production? In her new book, Arid Empire, Entangled Fates of Arabia and Arizona, University of Syracuse political geographer Professor Natalie Koch explores the exchange of colonial technologies between the Arabian Peninsula and the United States over the last two centuries, as well as the nature of the relationship between Arizona and Saudi Arabia. I spoke with Professor Koch and started by asking her what made her write a book about Saudi Arabia's historical connections with Arizona. I am from Arizona. I grew up in Arizona, but I have also been working in the Arabian Peninsula as a geography professor and researcher for quite some time. Because I'm from Arizona, I had always sort of read the landscape and developments in the Arabian Peninsula through the lens of somebody familiar with the desert. But I actually hadn't thought about the ways that they were connected until a handful of happenstance connections drew my attention to these ties. So once I got this initial curiosity around the Saudi dairy company's acquisition of a farm in Arizona, I started to poke at the topic for, for a little while. And then once I started to actually investigate it, the, the connections just blew up and spiraled in lots of different directions. And then I really couldn't resist to, to keep going further with the question about why they were connected. You actually opened the book by writing about this image, Double Exposure. It's a slide with an image of a camel and a Coke advertisement layered on top of each other. You write that the photograph brought arid empire into focus in a new way for you, forcing you to reflect on the way that images like camel, the desolate dune backdrop, and the consumerist Coke icon are all part of the symbolic repertoire that arid land experts use to fashion American understandings of the Arabian Peninsula. And you write, quote, I, too, have wandered through the Arabian Peninsula to understand its cultural, political, and physical geography. I, too, have photographed camel and western road signs. I, too, have stood 
as an American in these deserts trying to make sense of it, in some ways I can only understand the Arabian Peninsula by thinking about Arizona, a double exposure. The image that I write about and open with in the book is actually something from another geography professor who was in, in a way my predecessor at Syracuse University where I'm based now. His name was George Babcock Cressy. And Cressy, he came to Syracuse in the 1930s, and he was there for over over 30 years. He traveled all over the place. He started his career in China, but then later in his life, he got really interested in the Arabian Peninsula and had actually a Fulbright in Iraq in the 1950s. So Cressy, as it turned out, as I discovered in looking at the archival documents in the Syracuse University archives, he had visited central Saudi Arabia, which is a place where I was particularly interested in the book in Al-Kharj, this farming district. And I came across this photograph in his slides of this trip that he took to Al-Kharj in the early 1950s. So in looking at this set of color images, which truly were remarkable, especially from the 1950s, because they were slides to be able to see that in, in color and to really see what, what central Saudi Arabia looked like back then was really quite striking for me. But in that particular image, I started to see the way that I had also been interpreting the landscape of the Arabian Peninsula. You know, as you quoted there, I've, I've visited lots of dunes and been fascinated by the desert landscape and the camels and the way that American empire has come and interacted with the Arabian Peninsula. Part of that interest for me has actually always been in the role of U.S. higher education and U.S. universities working in the Arabian Peninsula. But I hadn't actually been very actively thinking about the role of just visiting researchers. So by looking at, at these images from my predecessor, another geographer before me, decades before visiting this exact same place that I was interested in and taking particularly staged photographs through the, the Western American imagination of this, of this place, it caught my breath and made me realize that I needed to do some more critical reflection about how I was going to write about and how I was going to portray these landscapes and these sites and histories in my own writing and thinking about these connections between Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula. So this sort of double exposure is something that I also had been thinking about in terms of how do I write this history through the present? And I think what, what you see that I've always found so evocative about that image of the double exposure is that it's two images juxtaposed over top of each other. And we usually think of a double exposure as a kind of error. But what I realized in looking at that picture is that by seeing that overlap of the past and the present of two different kinds of lenses at the same time as an error, that you're actually erasing a lot of these political ties about that interconnectedness and the way that we can see lots of different kinds of histories coming together in, in one particular site. And so I had begun to approach this in the book as a way of seeing double of trying to just resist that urge to clean up and present this nice tidy picture of, of the past is the past and the present is the present, but actually show how they're really deeply entangled. You write about how the American empire extended its reaches to the Southwest 
Arizona, and then they use the knowledge from the Arabian Peninsula to develop their agriculture. But at the same time, later on, they use their technical uh, knowledge to create another arid empire in Saudi Arabia. You say American practice of arid empire, packaging and selling their desert expertise, of course, later on in the name of a grand techno-optimistic future while reaping a nice profit. Mm. Yeah, you know, when I first started this project, I wasn't expecting it to be as historical as it became. But of course, one of the first things that I had to confront in understanding the ties between Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula is just the way that Americans, especially Americans from Arizona or working in Arizona, realized that that they could take control of this new desert landscape. We have to remember that much of the U.S. Southwest was added to the United States as a consequence of the Mexican-American War in 1848 Mm -hmm. and some sections later. So in taking over this land, these Arizonans had to sort of figure out the the technical and agricultural aspects of colonization. And Mm -hmm. so that history is actually something that they didn't just invent a new they didn't even want to turn to or work with the indigenous communities in the area they wanted to bring something different and so there was immediately this sense that they could transfer knowledge of what they called the old world deserts mm-hmm. to the new world deserts and it was this, this sort of fantasy in some ways about transferring these forms of knowledge and actual plants and animals between the old world and the new world that then gave rise to the sense that these new Americans, these Arizonans who became familiar with and could master the desert, that, well, that's something they could sell. And they wanted to sell that as the U.S. started to gain an interest in working in the Arabian Peninsula and other parts of the desert or arid Middle East, that was something really valuable for helping set up these relationships. So in in that sense, that sort of techno-fantastical image of of conquering the desert, which of course we we humans will always come up against a number of challenges in, in living and creating life in the desert, but it's not a landscape that many Americans till that point had really figured out how to live in and embrace. And so for them, it was a kind of extractive operation, figure out how to master this, find the tools, extract that, and then bring that to the ways of building new connections and imperial relations in the Arabian Peninsula a bit later. Yeah, you're right. As America's borders moved west, the empire thus unspooled through farming and homesteading as much as through military conquest. The natural features of the arid west confounded European settlers. However, the unfamiliar desert ecology and climate meant that they could not easily deploy their trusted model of farming, animal husbandry, and commerce in places with limited access to water, high and variable temperatures, different soil composition, and unique wildlife type and distributions. To address this challenge, empire builders in 19th century America took Middle Eastern deserts as a key source of inspiration. So what did Middle East, and specifically the Arabian Peninsula, offer these white settlers? And how did they use the desert landscape in the Arabian Peninsula as a template to transform the desert landscape in the southwest, in Arizona? One of the major 
parts of broader American colonial project. As the American project started to take shape, this was, of course, as you say, it's, it was a racial project, but it was also a project that sort of racial aspect was built into the fantasy of the sort of agricultural, pastoral fantasies of Europe. And so where this was expanding into the Great Plains, it started to get a little bit more difficult. Of course, when it got to other parts of the Pacific Northwest, maybe it was a little bit easier because those climates were were more familiar. But in the desert Southwest, uh, this absolutely was not the case. And so because American colonialism was so tied to this deeper history of agricultural settlement, the challenge for the new owners, in a sense, of, of this land in the U.S. Southwest was to figure out how to bring new agricultural practices that could work in the desert. So when different actors and sort of boosters of the territory, Arizona was a territory until 1912, as they were starting to think about how to transform the territory to become a state, they were really after finding new new agricultural technologies. So where do you figure out how to do that? As I said, they, they were not keen on doing anything that's embraced or supportive indigenous knowledge. This is clear from the racist language that you see in basically all of the institutions and lots of different texts at that time. And of course, the ongoing project of genocide and other forms of extermination of of indigenous communities in the region. As you write in the book, the settlers considered and treated their new place, meaning Arizona, as a land without people. And they were in turn, they were there to turn it into a fertile land. But the native lived on that land for thousands of years. You also write the desert landscape was not foreign for the native communities. It was simply home. As with any home, the desert was fraught with challenges for its residents, but it was not a place to be conquered, nor was it a place approached with a profit-centered logic of extraction. For most indigenous residents, the desert was a place of community and life, a place to be sustained rather than exploited for capitalist profiteering. But this way of knowing and relating to the desert did not align with the colonial logic of extraction. So settlers actively worked to remove native residents just as they had done elsewhere in North America. Building arid empire in the U.S. West was part of its displacing these people through genocide and war. But it was also about displacing their knowledge and ways of relating to the land. Yeah, exactly. What was difficult for these new settlers to imagine about how indigenous people were living and relating with the land is that that relationship was often not in the same sort of extractive capitalist approach that the Americans were coming with. And so when these colonizers were coming into this land, the question was, well, how do we make this land into a place where we can extract profit? And this is really, honestly, in a lot of the this early literature and pamphlets and other things trying to promote immigration to the to the U.S. Southwest, is 
that they're they're always promising would-be settlers of making a big profit and they're trying to entice the capitalist and the the entrepreneur this kind of relationship with the land is very specific to the colonial project but it didn't necessarily prevail in how the indigenous groups were imagining their relationship with agriculture so when when these new leaders in the territory started to say well how do we make a profit from this agricultural productive landscape or to make this into a productive agricultural landscape, they got really interested in some of the possibilities of agriculture that had been successful in the Arabian Peninsula and other parts of the Middle East. Mm. So around the mid 1800s, there was from then until the early 1900s, there was an obsession within America with dates it was sort of a ritual around Christmas and Thanksgiving that people would go and excitedly await the boats from Basra and from Muscat with the In Oman. Muscat is the capital. Yeah, Muscat in Oman. Yeah, exactly. And so these boats would come bringing huge quantities of dates, but it was Mm -hmm. only that one point in the year. And so Arizona farmers were really keen to get in on the date industry as a potentially profitable undertaking. And so date palms and a variety of other crops that were brought over from Northern Africa and the Middle East were some of the first places that people started to look in Arizona as a potential new resource that they could bring and set up a domestic industry within Arizona. Natalie, in addition to Oman, where else did the date palm trees come from? Which other countries? Uh, Many of them came from other parts of Northern Africa, Morocco, Mm -hmm. Egypt, Algeria. There are a number of other places and and other parts of of the Arabian Peninsula as well, Saudi Arabia included. So the industry in the United States today, it's largely concentrated in Southern California. But there is also a large amount of date production that's still happening in Arizona, but almost exclusively in the Yuma area. So if people know where their salad comes from in the winter, it's probably coming from Yuma. So this is the real heart of Arizona agriculture today. And so there are a number of date date plantations there that are producing dates. Uh, but for the most part, it, the date industry really got taken over by Southern California and, and places around Indio are really the heart of that today. And it's quite impressive. If anyone has a chance to visit some of these plantations, they're, they're really, really stunning. And they're growing quite quite quickly, even though there is, of course, a, a pretty severe water shortage in the area. Going back to that um, concept of double exposure that you spoke about in the beginning of our interview, in 2018, the Omani government signed a $3.9 million deal with the University of Arizona to help Oman develop its date industry by establishing a new date palm research laboratory outside of Muscat. And you ask an important question as how is it that the U.S. researchers could claim expertise in date palm agriculture when, if anyone, can claim to be the preeminent authority or anything date-related, it should be the Omanis themselves. Yeah, this was something that really struck me in the beginning of this part of the research. At that point, when I first started investigating the dates, I remembered that all across Arizona, there's palm trees everywhere, Mm -hmm. um, many of which are date palms, uh, but not all of them. Many of them are just decorative. So 
I sort of loosely was aware of this, but I hadn't been aware of the role of uh, the University of Arizona's Agricultural Extension Service in promoting date-related research. So today, the University of Arizona has an extension office in Yuma. As I said, this is kind of where the date industry is still concentrated, if, if it still exists in Arizona really at all. And there is one researcher there that's really sort of a leader in date-related research. And he was one of these people who the university was able to promote as a key leader in this kind of research. And so when you had alumni coming from the Arabian Peninsula who had studied in Arizona from the Arabian Peninsula, they were often sort of brought on tours of his facilities. They were brought to to visit. And so when the Omani Million Date Palm Project really got, got started, The leaders of that effort, they were tasked essentially with setting up a date production operation in Oman that was commercial, right? Because when we when we imagine Oman today, uh, you probably imagine the the smaller date farming that happens in, in, in communities and around just smallholder plots of land. There isn't necessarily this commercial operation that you could imagine if you just saw <laughs> dozens of lines of straight planted palm trees. This is essentially, though, what the Omani government had wanted to set up with the Million Date Palm Project. And so in Arizona, where this was something that they had kind of pushed and pioneered, they seemed to be the logical partners in developing this. The other point that I should make to, to why Arizona in, in this relationship, of course, there's this longer history. There's the first date palms that were brought to Arizona came from Moscat. There was, though, a more immediate concern, which is that the Million Date Palm Project was working with a military offset. So military offsets are essentially when the government makes a big arms deal, then the company that is doing the sale needs to give a certain amount of money toward domestic development. So there was a military offset opportunity in Oman that the Million Date Palm Project leaders took advantage of. And so they wanted to to use that, but it was an American company initially that they were working with. And so because it was an American company, they wanted to bring an American university because Mm -hmm. then the offset money goes back to the United States how these offsetting <laughs> schemes work in lots of complicated ways as an opportunity then to build on this relationship that they had already developed around date palm expertise and transfer of knowledge and all those sorts of things. So it became a way to sort of solidify this much broader geopolitical relationship where the dates are, are a nice byproduct, but of course the broader outcome for many parties is profit and geopolitical positioning. In a lot of ways, I've been trying to think about this this example of these agricultural connections as being somehow separate from the military aspect of, yeah. of U.S. empire and the Arabian Peninsula, but they absolutely are not. And I think this is, to me, the challenge of the soft power idea is that it sort of separates out the cultural and the scientific as, as these sort of positive, benevolent apparatuses and tools of power as opposed to a a hard, violent kind. In my previous writing on spectacle, I sort of make this argument that you can't have the 
positive spectacle without the punitive side. There's always a kind of violence that comes with that. And I think that the agricultural ties with these military operations is a really good illustration of that. So while they are working through a different set of networks, they're also fundamentally tied to this Mm -hmm. bigger militaristic ambition, which is absolutely the case uh, in terms of how U.S. companies are thinking about their relationship, how U.S. armed forces are thinking about their relationship with with the Arabian Peninsula and and elsewhere. Looking at the agricultural connections provides a different lens on how these networks are maintained. And I think this is really important, right? Because if we just imagine that the U.S. is just waving a missile at somebody and saying, do my bidding, we're missing the way that actually there's much, much more that is going into this. And that's making that relationship much deeper and more firmly rooted than if you were to just get rid of the missiles. The imperial project won't just go away. And so those cultural underpinnings and the scientific ties and the relationships of alumni from Mm. the Arabian Peninsula coming to Mm. the United States to study, Yeah. yeah, especially to Arizona, those networks are so essential to to maintain that relationship that even if a war ends or the military gets rid of its weapons, whatever it is, mm. those relationships are still there and they're still sort of undergirding that broader geopolitical structure of power. Yeah, and these are long-term relationships and they are, as you say, it's a network of elite connections that now it has expanded to consulting companies, architectural companies, different types of expertise. Absolutely. And and I think this is what I also, I found so fascinating about this particular part of the project of looking at Arizona in particular in the Arabian Peninsula, because before, before beginning work on this, I had actually been looking at U.S. branch campuses in the Arabian Peninsula, places like NYU Abu Dhabi, mm-hmm. uh, or the Education City University like Texas A&M and, and Qatar and, and Virginia Commonwealth, a number, a number of other branch campuses in the region. But what I saw with those was that essentially those universities were simply selling their name. And that, that to me was not very intellectually <laughs> interesting, I must say. But so by looking at, at how the University of Arizona and other scientific experts focused on arid lands and desert science, how they were able to also sell their services, but they weren't just selling a name, right? They were selling their role as experts in arid lands. And this, to me as a geographer, is is much more interesting. And it also then sort of opens up these other ways that these scientific networks are working through the ministries of agriculture, or how those ministry of agriculture connections are then tied up with the venture capital projects, etc, etc. So once you start to trace those more specific types of connection and expertise that, again, those Gulf alums who are coming to the U.S. to study, they are giving life to that. And they also have very particular projects and interests. And that, that I think, helps us understand something better than just saying, oh, yeah, New York University, of course, they're just, they're just selling their name there, end of story. Hmm. No, there's so much more to it than that, which I think can, can often get missed if we don't focus on what the actual science is that these people are doing there. Natalie, let's spend a little more time talking about the long history of connections between Arizona and the Arabian Peninsula. You start the book by giving a very interesting story about how camels were first brought into the U.S. So it's not just about date and palm trees. It's also about camels. 
to facilitate the expansion of the American empire into the Western reaches of the continent. And this ties in with the story of Hajj Ali, also known as High Jolly. He was sent to Arizona, to the American Southwest in 1850. Can you tell us about this history? They brought in different species of camels to see which one survives the long journey from Texas to Arizona. Yeah, so <laughs> the camel project also was the result of, of what I mentioned before about the U.S. acquiring this new swath of territory after the Mexican-American War. So this was 1848 that they took control of this land. And at this time, the immediate question for the American federal government and actually those who were tasked with this was the army. So the army had to figure out how to set up all these new army outposts and other sites to mark that the U.S. was there, <laughs> that it was that it was the new authority in town. So this required a lot of resources. And it required moving a lot of goods from the East Coast toward the West Coast. This was hugely time consuming. And many of these goods were moved on the back of animals because, of course, this, this was a, a place where there were not established roads. There, there of course, no paving. There was, uh, there was none of that. And so the animals that they were using to move all of these goods across the country, they were pack animals that had been familiar to them at that time, which was mules and horses and other smaller types of animals. This was also a type of animal that needed to be fed. And so they were mm -hmm. carting huge amounts of supplies, but also huge amounts of food for the animals to make the journey. So some of these men in the U.S. Army started to say, you know what, this is completely inefficient. How can we do this more effectively? There were a number of advocates within the U.S. at this time in uh, the, the early 1850s that started to say, well, why don't we use camels? And they thought of this for a number of reasons. Some imagined camels from their sort of biblical fantasies that people have about the Middle Eastern deserts and the, the, the images that they could conjure of this from the Bible were images that involved camels. Others had served in the Ottoman conflicts and had been to see how the Ottoman army was using camels. And they also said, oh, well, the Ottomans use the camels really efficiently. Why don't we do that too? <laughs> and so there are a number of voices from different corners of the U.S. government uh, that started to push for, for trying out camels. And so eventually, very long story short, when Jefferson Davis was Secretary of War, he approved or he kind of pushed through this congressional appropriation to get money to basically send a boat to the Middle East and to collect a number of different kinds of camels and bring them back to the U.S. to try out as, as new pack animals to help in this effort of taking over these landscapes. Some people had argued that they should also use them for the, the sort of military undertakings that they were go going on still against the Native Americans. They thought they would scare away the Native Americans. They didn't end up really focusing the camel projects on doing that. They mostly just used them for, for pack services. And so they eventually, I think in the first batch, they got a around 33 camels that were brought to Texas and then uh, used to, to try and transport 
export supplies from Texas all the way to California. And they were successful in a sense of accomplishing the journey. But of course, the Americans who were involved in this were very unhappy. Most of them hated the camels. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. But they also didn't know how to handle the camels. And so during this trip where they collected the first batch of the camels, they also brought over a number of different men, cameleers from the Middle East as helpers, essentially, to be able to handle the camels in that effort. And Haijali or Haji Ali was one of those people who was brought over in that first push in the mid 1850s. And he became sort of the most famous of these of these men, probably because he was the most efficient. He actually knew how to handle the camels where some of the others didn't so much know how to. But they were an important part of that project. Of course, they were successful, as I said, in a number of ways, but the project was ended because, well, the civil war broke out and the, the government stopped funding it. And you ask a very good question. You say, how did a Syrian camel driver end up as a central figure in the American quest to colonize the Arizona desert in the 1800s? Who was Haj Ali? Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, he, we actually don't really know much about his life before coming to the United States, but he had had experience in working with camels before. There's lots of open questions about his genealogy, but they said that he was from Syria, that he had a Greek Mm -hmm. mother, I think, and had really been a man of many different international backgrounds. So he came and he was a key part of the project. The Camel Corpse is what it was called at the time while it lasted. He actually then wanted to stay on and lived in Arizona for the rest of his life. He continued to work with the camels a bit while after the U.S. government stopped funding them, they eventually then used them for a few other projects of mapping the the border between Arizona and Mexico. And later, he did some other projects with them. But eventually, he settled in Arizona in Tucson, which is my hometown. And he married a woman there. He was apparently not very happy and in the sort of domestic arrangement. And he eventually left Tucson and moved up to a bit further north in Arizona. And he settled there doing a number of odd jobs and carrying U.S. mail, etc. around the region. But when I visited his tomb in 2019, it's this wonderful pyramid-shaped tomb with a camel Mm -hmm. on top. Mm -hmm. And it's really quite striking in the middle of this desert landscape that he is commemorated and and seen as somebody who is really kind of a local hero. But at the same time, he's still sort of imagined as a foreigner. And in, in this way, I think you really see this American this American story about foreigners, which is simultaneously one of, of embrace and celebration of their sort of multicultural heritage and the melting pot that we imagine about the U.S. Um, but he was still also very much part of a project that was about white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And this project was one of white supremacy, the grounds of taking over this land from excluding indigenous people and from helping these settlers 
plant their new agricultural projects in this land and using the knowledge and experience he had in service of that. I mean, obviously, we can't know what he really thought about this or intellectually how he was engaging with this. But for me, and and sort of looking at his tomb, these questions were all sort of bubbling to mind for Mm. me. Like, was this really something he was concerned with? Was this just a job? There's so many different ways to read how he might have reacted to the situation he found himself in in America in the 1850s. The plaque on his tombstone reads, The Last Camp of Hyjali, born somewhere in Syria about 1823, died at Quartzites, December 15, 1902, came to this country in February of 1856, Camelier Packer Scout, over 30 years, a faithful aide to the U.S. government. He's really celebrated as a mm. faithful aide to the U.S. government in its colonial conquest of the Southwest. Yes, ex- exactly. And I think that this is something that, you know, I read an article recently about how there was lots of question about what his, did he actually have an official military designation? Mm. And some people were saying that, well, he made it up, that he didn't have, I think it was a like a corporal status or so, there a number of different titles that he had claimed at some point in time. And many people were sort of refusing him that and saying that he didn't really have any official recognition from the U.S. government. But I think the fact that the plaque says that he was a faithful aide to the U.S. government shows that he really was quite proud of being in the service of the U.S. government and the U.S. military, that this was something that he would have celebrated at that point in his life. And again, we never really know in reflecting on these histories how people at the time felt about them personally. Uh, But you can imagine that this would be something he might have been quite proud of. Natalie Koch is professor of geography at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. And we are discussing her new book, Arid Empire, The Entangled Faith of Arabia and Arizona. The worsening drought in Arizona and the Colorado River water crisis has focused new attention on Fondomonte, a subsidiary of the giant Saudi dairy and agribusiness company called Almarai. Fondomonte owns about 10,000 acres of farmland in rural Arizona. The company also owns about 3,500 acres in Southern California, where it uses Colorado River water to irrigate its alfalfa crop destined for Saudi Arabia. So take us back in history. How did Arizona become so central to Saudi Arabia's dairy industry and agriculture? Yeah, there's actually quite a long history there. And I think it's quite tricky to pinpoint an exact moment when this starts. But I would really point to the figure of Carl Twitchell, who first came over to the Arabian Peninsula in the 1920s. And he had spent his career before that working in Arizona for some time. And he very quickly became an advisor. He was an American geologist, but he was sort of a jack of all trades. And he became an advisor to King Ibn Saud. And he saw that Ibn Saud was very concerned about 
agricultural issues, food supply, and that this was a kind of politically sensitive point for him. So the king had this farm outside of, of Riyadh at Al-Kharj, and Twitchell started to give him some advice about how to develop the farm and uh, suggested that he go back to the United States to do a little bit more research on how the Arizona farmers had developed all of these new farming techniques for the desert. And this was something that Twitchell wanted to encourage the Saudis to think in the Arizona fashion of, of approaching agriculture as a kind of commercial undertaking. Whereas before, of course, there were people farming in Saudi Arabia. It was just in a smaller scale, not a sort of commercial industrial type approach. So Twitchell helped set up a number of different projects at Al-Kharj, but I think the most important thing is that he ended up getting the U.S. government to sponsor his own agricultural mission around Saudi Arabia. So this was the, the State Department funding came in uh, 1942 for this big survey that he did. And following on from that, you could see in Twitchell's diaries that he was really, really interested in getting U.S. support for the Al-Kharj farm. That was what he was most concerned with doing. And so as an outcome of that report that he wrote for the U.S. government, he basically pushed for the U.S. government to fund a second mission to Saudi Arabia. And this second mission just basically consisted of sending a team of Arizona farmers to Saudi Arabia, to Al-Kharj farms to help expand the, the farming operations there. And when those Arizona farmers came, that was 1944 to 46 was when they were there. So you can imagine this is the middle of the war, end of the war, that this was seen as something on the part of the government as, as helping create goodwill with the Saudis. But it was also something that helped materialize and give so much firmer connections with Arizona. So besides sending the Arizona farmers to Saudi, then you also had various royal visits to Arizona to tour the agricultural operations in Arizona in the 40s. It was the first came in 1943, and then there was a second visit from then Crown Prince Saud al Saud. He came in 1947. So it was at this the second visit, Crown Prince Saud's visit, that he got really enchanted with Arizona's dairy operations. Uh, so a big part of Arizona agricultural from the beginning was promoting dairy farming and cattle ranching, etc. Once then Crown Prince becomes King Saud, he goes back to and he takes charge of the Al-Kharaj farms and he insists that he also get a dairy operation set up like he had seen in Arizona. And it's really from here in the early 50s that we have the birth of the dairy as a commercial operation based around cow milk getting its start in Saudi Arabia. So that's a longer historical view on where it kicked off. So you talked about Al-Hajj. How did Saudi Arabia, with very little water, manage to create an agriculture industry in the first place? What was the role of experts and scientists from the University of Arizona in helping the Saudis to create a mini Arizona in the Saudi desert? The main way that the Saudis were accessing water at this point in time, and especially in this location, was groundwater. So the reason that Al-Kharaj from the very beginning was a popular site within Saudi Arabia for farming was that they had the geology of the place was such that there were a number of these limestone sinkholes. And so if you can imagine what like a sinkhole looks like a huge hole in the ground, the groundwater was it was quite close to the surface. 
And so the Saudis before they had they had seen this water, you could access it uh, relatively easily. So they had animals that were pulling these buckets and pails of, of water out of the ground at, in the early days. But when the Americans came in the 1940s, one of the first things that they did, and this also included Aramco, now Saudi Aramco, they were involved in the, the farming operations at Al-Kharja as well. They brought in a number of these mechanical pumps, essentially, mm-hmm. so that they were more efficiently able to pump the groundwater and distribute that across a much broader area in the Al-Kharja area. So the way that Saudi farming in this part of the part of the country really got started was was simply from extracting the groundwater. Of course, as anyone who is familiar with how groundwater works, it's very slow to recharge, right? This water is often called fossil water simply because it's been there for hundreds of thousands of years and it's just a slow, slow, slow trickle water that's seeping into the ground that that might refill these these aquifers. So, if you supercharge the pumping, <laughs> that is not going to be sustainable for eventually the Saudis did have problems with that as they over extracted and Arizona has been doing the same thing these machines and the groundwater pumping that these Arizona farmers were promoting and advertising in coming to Saudi Arabia was the same technology that they were using in Arizona and, and that of course now today is also becoming a problem because Arizona's groundwater is being much more rapidly depleted than replenished Beyond that, I mean, I think scientists have had a really long relationship with different members of the Saudi royal family, with different members of the Ministry of Agriculture, etc. I think one of the early important things that kicked off this relationship was that Saudi students started to study in Arizona. Many of those Saudi students would come specifically to study agriculture and desert agriculture. That that was something that the University of Arizona researchers were really keen to promote their specialization in arid lands science and desert farming. So many of those ties did kind of continue to revolve around this issue of agriculture, water resources, development, and that was a key part of it. But other University of Arizona researchers advised lots of different types of projects in the country over the last many decades. By the way, how similar is the climate of Saudi Arabia with Arizona in terms of temperature, precipitation, humidity? How similar are these two geographies? Well, I think both places, Saudi Arabia and Arizona, are incredibly diverse. So when you imagine the state of Arizona, you can have places that have sand dunes, like we imagine in many parts of of the Arabian desert, Mm -hmm. dune-like desert. But then there's, of course, also mountains and really rocky areas with a higher elevation. And so they're both really quite varied. I think that the thing that struck me in in working on this book is actually that the explicit comparison of uh, what we would imagine sort of the physical geography facts of the places were actually not that relevant for a lot of the actors involved in the stories that I'm I'm recounting in the book. Mm-hmm. And that's simply because they learned that that very ambiguous understanding of what constitutes a desert, what is a desert, mm-hmm. what, what makes this our desert comparable to your desert, it's mm-hmm. actually better to keep it vague 
And it's better to just reference that vague notion of the desert if you want to sell your expertise or mm. if you want to sell your product, if you want to sell your, your technology, any of those types of things. It's much better if you can just play with that ambiguity and be satisfied with just saying that, yes, we both come from deserts and we can therefore work together. Mm. If you dig too much into the specifics, the story sort of starts to fall apart. You're right, Al-Khard was described as an quote-unquote, experimental form as what it takes to turn this desert landscape into the most modern practices to landowners and farmers from all parts of the kingdom. Yet, Al-Khajr was never actually approached as an experiment or model to be scaled up. Rather, the farm was specifically designed to produce crops for the king's personal disposal Most of its produce was distributed to the vast royal family in Riyadh, while grain fed the hundreds of royal horses stabled in the area, as well as other livestock in and around Riyadh. And these fields produced a wide range of crops, including alpha, alpha and wheat, which we'll talk about later, barley, oats, uh, Sudan grass, as well as tomatoes, melon, squash and more. Right. I think this was this was a big part of the way that Carl Twitchell was able to get involved in this project and advertise it back to the US government as well as to the Saudi government. From Twitchell's vantage point, it was obvious that Al-Kharaj was always a royal interest. It was about the king. It was not a space for ordinary people in any way, shape, or form. But how do you get the U.S. government to fund that? How do you justify these kinds of lavish investments in this one little little farming site in the middle of the country? And you can do that if you say, well, it's an experiment for how we are going to scale this up and introduce to all of Saudi Arabia. And that story is quite it's quite convenient because then you can, as I said, you can sell that to the U.S. government and say, you know, this isn't just us throwing money at the king for his pet project. This is us investing in the future of Saudi Arabia. So, yes, this was really a major, I would say, defining point of how the project was approached, because as you gave in that quote as well, the produce and everything that was actually being developed there was not going to feed the masses. It was really just part of the king's interest and sending food to, to different royal family members. He would also often receive visiting royal family members from other Gulf countries at the time and just sort of use it as a showcase to them about how modern Saudi Arabia was becoming and <laughs> sort of developing this, this whole economy of prestige around these types of projects, these new modern developments. The Saudis were first and the Kuwaitis needed to follow suit, etc. So from that standpoint, it was also quite useful for the king's development of symbolic capital, if you will. Who controlled the farmland in Al-Khajr? The land was controlled by the Saudi royal family. There weren't really like community farming plots okay. in the area. Who did the actual work on those the, farms? The actual work was done by, by laborers from neighboring communities, but none of them really had any control of the land itself. They were just brought in as detached from the land, if you will, as uh, simply laborers. There were farm managers as well. So after the Arizona farmers came in the 1940s, the U.S. government cut the funding for that project. And so there was not any additional U.S. funding after 1946. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but at that point, the king then went back to Aramco, the mm -hmm. oil company, and asked them to take over management. And so Aramco then managed it through the 1950s. I, I can't remember exactly when they stopped, but it was a good while longer that Aramco controlled it. And so Aramco sent their own staffers to do the sort of administrative work. But the Aramco folks, they were also simply just hiring various people from that community to do the actual labor. The reason I'm asking is because I've been watching videos about Al-Hajj, and I've noticed that a lot of Southeast Asians are mm. living there and seems to be working on these farms. It's like many of the other sectors in the Gulf region that the top people sort of decide they want this project to happen and then work with recruiting agencies to, to find laborers in a recruiting agencies working in, and they then get the staffing through that. And so it's, it's like any other industry really in the Gulf. You write that from the earliest days of American settlement of Arizona, Alpha Alpha had been identified as a key to prosperity in the desert, as you mentioned. By the 1940s, it had become firmly established in the state's agriculture economy, especially as its irrigation network expanded rapidly over the first half of the 20th century. So when the Rogers team from Arizona traveled to Saudi Arabia in 1944, its members were taking with them a well-established familiarity with the gospel-like promise of alpha-alpha production in the desert and its special ability to support a livestock industry. When did alpha-alpha production and cultivation in Saudi Arabia take off? The main introduction of alfalfa to, to Saudi Arabia came with the Rogers mission. That was the team of Arizona farmers that came in 1944. They brought that as a, a possibility for future development in this, this new view of developing commercial agriculture in Saudi Arabia. They, as read in that quote, they had had experience with this in Arizona. And one of the things that's really important to note about alfalfa is that it grows very, very quickly. So if you have enough water applied to it, you can get a lot of cuts each year. Mm -hmm. So maybe in, in some parts of the country where there's regular rainfall, it's not actually that, it, it's less productive to have alfalfa growing there because you can't let it dry in the fields and doesn't grow as fast because there's more cloudy days, whatever it is. So in some places, you might get three cuts a year. In the desert, you might get 10. Mm -hmm. So this is a really big difference. And this is, this is what the Arizona farmers came to Saudi Arabia knowing. So at that time when they were there in the 1940s, they were mostly growing it for the horses and the other livestock that were in the area. At this point, there wasn't any dairy farming happening. But when Crown Prince, at that time, Crown Prince Saud went to Arizona in 1947, he met up again with David Rogers, who was the lead person from Arizona who, who led that expedition. So back in Arizona, Rogers took him around and showed him all the alfalfa fields and showed him the dairy operations. And it was in those conversations about the alfalfa and how it was being used to feed the dairy cows 
that there was then the idea that Crown Prince Saud would want to develop a, a dairy industry back in Saudi Arabia himself. Mm-hmm. So because you already had the introduction of the alfalfa in this area, it made sense to just further expand that and to locate that farming operation next door to the new dairy operations. That was really where that idea of pairing those came together and why it was it was really started at Al-Kharj. And how long were they able to continue with cultivating alfalfa because it's in 2014 that they decided to start shopping for alpha alpha in other countries including Arizona. Right. So there's quite a lot that goes on in the Saudi agricultural landscape for the decades from when the dairy industry really got started in the, the early mid 1950s until into the 1990s. The Saudi government massively, massively subsidized domestic agricultural production, so much so that farmers were completely unsustainably developing water-intensive crops like wheat, alfalfa, etc. And I think at some point in the 1990s, Saudi Arabia was one of the largest wheat exporters in the world uh, because of these subsidies. And so with the broader result of this set of policies was that Saudi Arabia starts to run out of water in the the early 2000s that they started to realize there was a problem. But by 2014, 15, that's that's when the government said, "Okay, no, we really have to stop. We're we're basically out of out of our groundwater. And at at that point, farmers were being told that they were no longer going to be able to get access to these domestic subsidies for grain production. However, because (laughs) the set of policies also led to the development of this big agricultural elite within Saudi Arabia, Mm -hmm. the government didn't want to just overnight upset a lot of these farming elites who were important political allies. And so they shifted the subsidy regime to include subsidies for acquiring land developments, uh, farmland development outside of Saudi Arabia as a kind of way to compensate and then shift that subsidy regime overseas. We spoke about this early in our conversation that Fondamonte, a Saudi company, exports the Alpha Alpha to feed its cows in Saudi Arabia because Saudis have practically exhausted their own water aquifers. And according to Arizona PBS station, in Arizona, Fondamente can pump as much water as it wants at no cost. According to the report, groundwater is unregulated in most rural areas of the state. Fondamente pays only $25 per acre annually. The state land department says the market rate is $50 per acre, and it provides a 50% discount because it does not pay for improvements. But the $25 per acre price is about one-sixth of the market price for unimproved farmland with flood irrigation today. And there are no records for how much Fondamenta is pumping out of the aquifers, according to a state land department report that estimates the company is swallowing up as much as 18,000 acres feet every year, enough water to supply 54,000 single family homes in Arizona. So different parts of the broader 
Saudi agricultural landscape went in different corners of the world. There were lots of problematic deals early in the 2000s. And this was something that various decision makers in the agricultural sector took away the fact that they would need to go to places that are perhaps more politically stable, shall we say. <laughs> so the U.S. became a favorable option in that sense. And Al-Murai, it was one of these actors in this broader agricultural sector from Saudi Arabia that was being forced, as with all other Saudi agricultural giants, to source their alfalfa and source the grains that they needed to feed the cows back in Saudi Arabia with feed from abroad. So Almarai, they acquired this, uh, it was actually an Argentinian company, Fondamonte. And Fondamonte is it's now also what we know as the subsidiary that Almarai owns in Arizona. So now there's Argentina operations and there's Arizona and there's California operations. Each of them now sort of runs under a separate banner of the, the subsidiary structure. But in any case, in Arizona, because I've really needed to narrow in on what was happening in Arizona, the deal there made a lot of sense for Almarai because where the farm is located that they now control, it's just west of Phoenix. This is an area of Arizona where groundwater pumping is not regulated. So when the Saudis acquired this, it was already an alfalfa farm. However, the many in the Arizona farming community, they do well for themselves, but they don't have huge amounts of cash. Mm. And what you need if you want to continue to drill lots of groundwater is you need to drill deep wells. And deep wells are expensive. So when the Saudis took over the farm, the farm was limited in a sense because they didn't have that many wells. So when, when Almarai took it over, they applied for a bunch of new well permits and drew and drilled those those new wells across the farm space and were able to expand the production because they were simply able to drill deeper and, and get more water. And because the only point of regulation from the state here is whether or not those wells are permitted, there's no regulation on the amount of water that is being extracted from any single well. So they were able to just continue to pump uh, very large quantities. And as I said already, with regard to alfalfa, if it has enough water, it will grow fast. And so they were able to, in the course of a year, just get a lot more alfalfa out of this land because there was just plentiful water that they were accessing and were able to expand the production in that way. There's a number of other shadies still under investigation in Arizona right now. It's not entirely clear how they acquired some parcels of the land. Mm -hmm. And they're also getting essentially a number of kickbacks from the state. And this is a lot of this has been quite unclear uh, because of the previous administration, the Ducey administration in Arizona hid a lot of this information. There was an election in 2022. So now there's a new attorney general and a new governor in Arizona, and they have promised to do much more research into this and to change a lot of the loopholes and expose them being hidden by mm. the government in Arizona. And it all began in 2015 when the state land department began leasing land to Fondamonte at an annual rental of just $25 an acre. Yes, really extraordinarily low. And of course, you can imagine that many people in 
the surrounding can hang for their water or why the water that they're trying to drill from their wells isn't even there anymore. Because Mm -hmm. when you suck a lot of that groundwater out, the ground table lowers. So all around Vicksburg, this area where the farm is located, they've, they've really been suffering from these massive extractions of water at the farm. Natalie, you write, Almarai is emblematic of how far-reaching Saudi agro-commodity companies have become. Now the largest dairy company in the Middle East, Almarai has expanded into many other categories, including juice, baked goods, infant formula. It also manages a massive logistics network of vehicles, port facilities, and shipping for the distribution of food, grain, and more. And this company was founded in 1977 by Prince Sultan bin Mohammed bin Al-Kabir, who remains with the company as the chairman of the board. What's going to happen to the dairy industry in Saudi Arabia if Arizona decides to limit Fondamonte's operation in the state? Most of the alfalfa is getting shipped back to Saudi Arabia, and it's going to feed the cows that are based in Saudi. The last I checked, the numbers are about 95,000 cows, which is really quite an extraordinary amount. So to answer the question of whether this will change, I think it must. In the short term, I'm not sure how much it will. Part of it depends on what happens in Arizona, what happens with the politics around this farm. There's a huge, huge push and effort on the part of both the Republicans and Democrats in Arizona to change things so that the Saudis are no longer being able to operate in Arizona. I think that will come to pass, that they end up finding a way to push Almarai out. In the long term, though, I can imagine Almarai simply pivoting and acquiring a new farming operation somewhere else, and this being a way to sort of hold over whatever the remaining industry is within the country. I'm not entirely convinced that the Saudi government is going to get very involved in this, though, because the families that are associated with Almarai are not in very good relation with uh, Mohammed bin Salman and his regime. There's not necessarily the Saudi government that's going to be pushing. That might not change things. But overall, if if this is an industry that really matters and the Saudis feel that this is strategically important, then they will find ways to make those investments in other places, even if it's not necessarily happening within the borders of Arizona as a state. All of that said, should this be happening? (laughs) Should they be perpetuating and pushing a dairy industry? From my standpoint as a geographer and as somebody who's interested in, in seeing positive change and getting beyond destructive climate policies that we have in our agricultural industry? Absolutely not. I think that these cows do not belong there, and especially not at this kind of industrial scale. Mm-hmm. And it's the same whether it's cows or it's alfalfa. You can have a cow, you can have an alfalfa farm, but the commercial massive extractive approach to things, this is the problem. So can you talk about the water situation in Saudi Arabia and how they are getting around water scarcity in that place? The main technique, as with most of the Gulf countries, is through desalination. And for a long time, Saudi Arabia's desalination plants were running on just burning crude oil. This was this was really what they were doing. 
now many of the desalination plants have moved to burning natural gas, but overall desalinating seawater is, is hugely energy intensive. So even as they've tried to quote unquote upgrade their desalination plants, they are still really, really quite problematic in terms of the energy consumption. And at some point, you know, the, the various advisors to the government, both in Saudi and, and in the UAE, uh, Qatar, etc., et all sort of saying, look, if you're wasting these energy resources to desalinate your seawater, this is a missed opportunity that you could be exporting that oil and gas and sending that abroad. So why don't you try to be more efficient here? <laughs> They've taken some some of that advice to heart and have tried to change the policies in that sense simply because they understand that they can get more profit by selling that oil and gas internationally. But at the same time, free water or heavily, heavily subsidized water is part of what's kind of understood to be this, this sort of ruling bargain where the government gives citizens free things as a, a concession for being, well, not including their voice in any sort of democratic system. So uh, many of the Gulf governments are incredibly reluctant to touch those benefits, especially around water. They don't want to give up the free water that's offered to its citizens. Natalie Koch is professor of geography at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. And we are discussing her new book, Arid Empire, The Entangled Faith of Arabia and Arizona. We'll talk more after a break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. For those of you joining us now, I am Malihera Zozan, and you are listening to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa on KPFA in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Today I'm speaking with University of Syracuse political geographer, Professor Natalie Koch, about her new book, Arid Empire, The Entangled Fate of Arabia and Arizona. As you write in your book, The Arid Empire, the disorienting invisibility of Arid Empire is not just limited to the past and present. It includes the future, too. And that takes us to Saudi Arabia and the Nome Project. The Saudi Crown Prince bin Salman's pie-in-the-sky grand fantasy Nome is going to cost nearly $1 trillion dollars. It is sold as a futuristic zero-carbon community fully equipped with robots, AI, and face recognition technologies. If completed, Nome will be nearly 33 times the size of New York City. It comprises of an elongated 106-mile linear city called The Line, 
which would eventually house 9 million people, Trojena, a year-round man-made outdoor skiing resort built in the desert, Sindala Island, which is promised to be more extensive than Disneyland, and finally, the octagon-shaped city, Oxygon, as it's called, the world's largest floating structure in the Red Sea. Can you tell us more about this giant development in the desert and how it was conceived, who is working on it, who's making money? And last uh, but not least, known will, according to its developers, will exist entirely outside the confines of Saudi judicial system governed by an autonomous legal system. Right. So the NEON project is one of these exemplary utopian visionary projects, a kind of greenfield city, or at least the idea is is that it's a greenfield, a blank slate, the tabula rasa, if you will. Of course, there is no such thing as a blank slate. And in fact, many people have been relocated from the area where Neom is supposed to be in Saudi Arabia. And this has caused quite a controversy among some who are paying attention to this issue. But first, once you clear out the people, as the uh, developers have done, you can cast it as this big empty slate, as we see with the way that the desert is often imagined as just a fanciful place for utopian villages. And this is something that you see in all of the PR and all the advertising for Neon, that it's going to be this great new place to sort of power the Saudi economy into the future. And of course, with all these contemporary visions of of the future, this is a very high-tech, AI-oriented future, many new forms of, of technology, which of course also, as you suggested, come with a certain degree of surveillance culture. And of course, this isn't sufficient just to call it high tech and modern today, that it also has to be branded as green. And so the Saudi developers have really tried to spin this project, which to my mind, desert should just be left empty. But if you are going to develop that land and call it green, they are trying to create new ways of of imagining this and, and proposing this as a sort of green intervention into developing into new extreme environments. So the people who are behind this, of course, then are all of those in the high tech expert field who are often Western consultants, Western researchers, Western engineers, others who are being enlisted and being paid very large salaries uh, to come help develop the project. But of course, it's all gearing toward the bigger vision, the Saudi vision of Mohammed bin Salman, because Niam has been defined in his in his vision document as one of the these new bigger projects. So one of the real big emphases that that he and others in, in Saudi Arabia will have going long into the future. Who are the investors? Where's the seed money coming from? Well, to my understanding, the primary funding is coming from the Public Investment Fund, the PIF, which is the main sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. And since Mohammed bin Salman's ascent to power, really, really focused on expanding the scope of the PIF and its investments in all different sectors. So the NEOM project, the engine behind it is PIF. But of course, there would be lots of other 
other commercial partners and actors who are involved in it as well, ranging from different institutions within the Saudi government to private investors, consulting companies like McKinsey, and many others that are being brought in to help realize the project. What is the role of McKinsey in this project? I'm not sure what exactly it is at the present moment, but from the beginning, they were sort of behind some of the early conceptualization, as far as I understood, and some of the design, the site planning, the, the strategy, etc. So they are given, as with many different contracts around the Gulf, a bigger project and said, how could this work? How could we imagine this kind of city that is going to be opulent, simultaneously opulent in the desert environment and hyper-modern? That was essentially a sort of conceptual work that, that they were doing early on. Who is this project meant for? I would say from my reading of it, of course, this is just a partial perspective, but my reading of it is that this is largely about encouraging Western investment in Saudi Arabia. So as some people might have seen the expansion of the tourism campaign within Saudi Arabia, this is one way to get foreign dollars flowing into the country. But of course, getting longer term investors to come is another part of that effort. So if you can get Western or sort of high net worth individuals to come and to live in these places and buy property there, maybe it's only part year residences, or if you can get them to um, open a headquarters for their company, there's all range of different ways that you could get other investors to come in. And as you mentioned before, the government's idea is largely that it should exist outside of the, the prevailing laws or legal structure of Saudi Arabia. And this is something, of course, that they're doing very strategically, knowing that many of the high net worth actor target are reluctant, (laughs) to say the least, to really set up shop or to even invest in Saudi Arabia as it exists at the present. So the general idea here would be to create this kind of island space, to create a spatial enclave zone for this type of investment. So that would, I would say, would be the larger objective of doing that. And then meanwhile, making different kinds of profits from the government side to help uh, encourage this development. You brought up a couple of points. One was selling it as a green intervention. Uh, This project is also an ecological disaster. Line, the mirrored city, according to experts, is going to disrupt the migration of birds and animals through the desert. The marine ecosystems in the Red Sea are going to be impacted. Its construction requires massive amount of building material to be transported to the desert. And this fantasy is made possible by fossil fuel, by oil, and foreign investment and experts, as you talked about. What do you think about the environmental impacts of such projects, especially at a time that we are experiencing a climate catastrophe? And this is getting very little attention, to my surprise. I think it's simply devastating. I mean, I really don't have many more superlatives to add to that. But... One of the tragedies to me about the way that that many people think about the desert as a site to be exploited or extracted or bombed or treated as a trash dump, whatever it is, is that there's complete disrespect for, for the beauty of the land, for the ecological value of the land, whatever different kinds of values we might ascribe to a desert that are positive. 
this kind of intervention, this, it assumes that and it destroys it. It actively destroys many mm. of those wonderful sides of it. And I think to me as somebody who grew up in the desert, in the Arizona desert, I've seen that attitude and I find it simply tragic. And overall, the water demands, uh, pollution impacts, all of these bigger side effects that come with large-scale construction are going to have really transformational effects on this area that is actually quite, quite undeveloped and overall very well preserved. You also brought up people being relocated, forced out because of this project. Saudi's PR campaign has adopted the classic colonialist narrative that these mega structures are going to be built in, quote, virgin area that has a lot of beauty, meaning it is a land without people. But that part of the desert is home to 20,000 people of the indigenous Kuwaiti tribe who have been evicted from their ancestral home. An activist and a member of the tribe living in London told the Guardian for the Huwaiti tribe, Nome is being built on our blood and our bones. It is definitely not for the people already living there. It is for tourists, as you said, people with money, but not for the original people living there. So can you tell us more about that? I think it's quite familiar to the story that, that I tell in my book about the erasure of indigenous claims to the desert lands in the U.S. Southwest. So the mythology of the blank slate of this spectacular, sparkling new city in the middle of nowhere this depends on that active erasure of those human claims to a particular place. So in removing these people, they are also that their removal is part of creating that mythology and it's part of creating that spectacle. And in my other work where I've talked about, I've done research on, on the idea and the politics of spectacle, the, the sort of shiny, positive, celebratory spectacle at the center, it always goes hand in hand with the punitive spectacle of violence. And there's many different ways that we can understand that, but often that sort of punitive violence spectacle is one of, of erasure of other people's claims, which it becomes the condition for that beautiful, shiny thing that is being developed. So in this, I, I don't necessarily see the Saudi case here as unique. Uh, we've seen this play out in all different parts of the world. Mm. Uh, but of course, it had its unique national tragedy, in a sense, because it's being framed as this great new push into the future. But if that push into the future is built on the violence and the neglect of these communities, that says a lot for what the country's future will be. Focusing on Saudi Arabia in particular, and what it means to be involved or engaged in any type of protest, because it can mean death penalty, one who waited activist was killed a couple of years ago after making videos protesting the evictions, and three members of the tribe have been given death sentences, while three more have been handed 50-year jail sentences on terrorism charges. A recent report by the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights says, despite being charged with terrorism, they were reportedly arrested for resisting forced evictions in the name of the NEON project and the construction of the 106-mile 
linear city called the line. You also write in your book, extravagant schemes to make the desert bloom are unfortunately always built on unsustainable patterns of using water and energy, and I would add cheap labor. And this is not the first time that a so-called imagined futuristic modern and eco-friendly city has been experimented on in the Arabian Peninsula. For example, in your book, you write about the United Arab Emirates, which started a construction in 2006 on a new quote-unquote carbon-neutral eco-city called Master City to model an urban form that can confront the challenges of climate change through high-tech design and sustainability research and development. And according to Bloomberg, the United Arab Emirates pumps out nearly 25 tons of carbon annually per capita, one of the highest rates in the world. Can you tell us more about that project and how known project is just a mega version of that mindset? Yeah, the Master Project was really the first big, iconic eco-city development in the Arabian Peninsula. It was one of these projects that was built with the cooperation of a number of Western experts. MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, they were very involved in the beginning, the early development of it. And the famous architect, Norman Foster, was responsible for some of the original site design, etc., Norman Foster actually had been to Arizona and was quite interested in some of the eco-city projects that were developed in, in Arizona in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and used some of those as a model for bringing them back to his design for Mazdar. But the overall idea of Mazdar was, was not necessarily to reference, openly at least, that Arizona past, but to say, we are doing this new, big, fancy project. And you're talking about Biosphere 2. Yeah. So in Arizona, the main places that, that Foster was looking at was Arcosanti. Arcosanti was a, a project that started in the 1960s and 70s by Paolo Soleri, an Italian architect, and Biosphere 2. That was the other general vision for it. So I could say lots about the architectural circulation, but I'll spare people on that. But in any case, Norman Foster, of course, didn't want to necessarily claim that the Emirati project was a continuation of this, but to rather set it out as if it was this brand new thing of developing an eco-city in the desert as this new way to imagine radically different form of environmentally friendly living in an extreme environment, namely the Emirati Desert. So Mazdar is built just outside of the airport of Abu Dhabi and for quite a long time struggled to get the project up and running. There are a number of buildings on site. MIT had some activities there. Now there's sort of been a, a churning cycle of different universities that have been affiliated with the campus there. Uh, but essentially, it's only the university operations that are sort of up and running. And Siemens, the German engineering company, they have their headquarters in Abu Dhabi is on site in Mazdar City as well. There's some stuff there, but mostly it feels completely empty and abandoned. And I've been going for about 10 years, the last time I was there was just last year, and it's it still feels very much empty. But they, they continue to build and, and continue to say that it's going to be green in the future. Of course, it's not in the present, uh, but, but the promise is always in the future. You're right. Master City was supposed to become a gleaming exemplar of sustainable urban design in the austere hinterlands of Abu Dhabi. 50,000 people were supposed to live there. It was never realized. 
and has since been written off as a failure. You write that Master was nonetheless effective at grabbing ample media attention for the UAE story about promoting environmental sustainability. So why do these oil-rich monarchies spend so much money on these extreme projects? There's a lot of ways to answer that question. I suppose it depends on which kind of actor you're you're looking at within the government, if the government is the institution that you're interested in. But I think they see potential rewards in the future, and those rewards could be financial, but they also simply could be political. So in authoritarian systems, you don't necessarily have the same rewards and assurances of continuation of your control and your power as you would necessarily have in democratic contexts. So often what happens in authoritarian settings like this is that people in different institutions, they'll kind of guess. They will guess as to what kind of project, what kind of activities might serve them well and create political capital in the future. And so with this case, I think you have a lot of actors within the Emirati government who aren't really sure what kind of rewards they're going to get, but they think that this is the kind of project that the government would reward them for supervising and for helping launch the government and the country into international recognition. But on the flip side of this, I think it is really important to remember that this is not just about what the UAE government is doing. This is also about all of those Western companies and universities and architects and engineers and all sorts of people who are getting involved in this type of project. And they also have a vested interest in realizing this project because why else? They make a lot of money. And in that sense, many of these projects in the Gulf, especially related to sustainability, they are as much about the Gulf elites seeking something from their side as they are about different Western actors, companies, experts, etc., who are also seeking something and that they see that this is an opportunity to do that in, in a place like Mazdar City in the UAE. The region is running out of water. According to Saudi Food and Drug Administration data, the country imports 80% of its food from 157 countries. And also climate change is making water scarcity even more prevalent. All of these countries, much of their water is coming through desalination. What does the appetite for unlimited growth mean for the countries in the Gulf and specifically Saudi Arabia? I'm a little bit of a, a pessimist on this account, I have to say. But yes, as, as you say, water is becoming a large issue in many places in the world. But really, the other big issue for the Gulf countries is the fact that they continue to rely on desalination and highly energy intensive forms of desalination yeah. to do that. And so as these projects continue to expand, then creates a kind of path dependent that they then need to continue to find more and more ways to get the water to allow the projects to continue. So unless somebody sort of waves a, a magic wand and is able to develop desalination technologies that are low energy, 
then we are going to have a problem. And as much as the, the Emiratis and the Saudis increasingly now too say that they are trying to invest in renewable energy and invest in renewable energy to power its desalination facilities, that absolutely is not happening right now. The actual use of renewable energy across the region is extremely, extremely low. And the desalination plants, none of them are running on, on renewables. Yeah. So this is very far off in the future. Before we end, I wanted to ask you a general question that goes back to the um, the theme of your book. Major American universities have satellite campuses or research centers in the Gulf. How do you see the role of these universities in extending the U.S. geopolitical power into the Middle East, as well as solidifying their own relationships with oil-rich Gulf monarchies? And what are the consequences? The U.S. universities have many different kinds of relationships with Gulf institutions, Gulf actors, Gulf governments, etc. But I think the ones that have received the most attention within the U.S. context and maybe the higher ed community more broadly is those who have set up branch campuses, in particular New York University and Abu Dhabi, as well as a number of the branch campuses at Qatar's Education City Complex. This includes Texas A&M, Virginia Commonwealth, Georgetown. There's a number of other at that site. So these universities have essentially sort of sold their name and have gotten very lucrative deals for setting up the branch campuses there. It's very difficult to actually know what those deals involve because essentially with the exception of Texas A&M, they are private universities. And so no one really knows how much money they are making and how they are profiting and how they're distributing that money. But in any case, it has been an important way to build this sort of quasi-diplomatic ties between U.S. institutions, U.S. actors through these projects, which make the universities a lot of money, but at the same time allows them to tell their nice typical story of U.S. higher education, which is we're developing a critical new perspective and introducing people to democracy and critical thinking and liberal subjectivity, these sorts of positive narratives about U.S. academia become an important way that they then justify those investments. Of course, for my research on the University of Arizona in in the Arabian Peninsula, this was a bit different because University of Arizona didn't have a brand name to sell. Rather, their experts figured out that they could sell their specialization in arid land science and desert expertise. So this relationship, I would say, is is a bit different because it tends to work instead of through institutions, through alumni networks and smaller projects that are a little bit harder to track. Why the Gulf has become such an attractive place for these universities? It's a revenue stream. <laughs> this is something that many different universities and the sort of neoliberalization of U.S. higher education, different actors have been tasked with finding new revenue streams and doing so through some of these actual branch campuses is one way. But the other important channel that we need not underestimate is the role of donor money. So many Gulf students come to study at U.S. universities and often they will leave significant legacies and build connections with certain universities. And if universities can properly cultivate that relationship, they can make a lot of money from their from their alumni. Natalie Koch is professor of geography at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs and the author of Arid Empire, 
The Entangled Fate of Arizona and Arabia. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening.